Hello and welcome to UK Life Report. This week, we turn to the other side of the world to spotlight Canadian Deputy Prime Minister Hristena Freeland and how her Ukrainian heritage has contributed to her political success. We also discuss the newly opened Russian Armed Forces Cathedral and its controversial mosaics. All this coming up on Zakrtonyi Ukraininsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So, Hristja Freeland, she is a politician in Canada who is quite interesting, like Sarah and I and all of our co-hosts found out this week. She is the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs in Canada, and the news outlets there have been calling her the Minister of Everything because she just keeps taking on roles and responsibilities and she's helping with the coronavirus pandemic. She's trying to heal the rift between the provinces. She's doing all this cool, crazy stuff. So, yeah, we just thought we'd give a little bit of a background to this amazing woman. So, in 2014, she was named one of Toronto's 50 most influential people by the Toronto Life magazine, and in 2018, she was recognized as Foreign Policy's Diplomat of the Year, which goes to show just how much her expertise is valued. Um, her father was a farmer and a lawyer and a member of the Liberal Party of Canada, while her mother was an activist in the Ukrainian Canadian community, and her grandfather on her mother's side uh, had been a journalist before World War II and edited a periodical uh, during the war in Poland called News of Krakow. So it's possible to see from this background where she got her motivation to go into journalism and politics. Having finished her studies at Harvard and then the University of Oxford, she worked as a freelance reporter based in Ukraine for the Financial Times, the Washington Post and the Economist. In 2010, she worked for Thomson Reuters, where she was the managing director and editor for Consumer News. And she decided to enter politics in 2013, when she was first elected as a member of parliament for Toronto Centre. From 2015 to 2017, she served as Canada's Minister of International Trade. I mean, she negotiated Canada's free trade agreement with the European Union. And then from 2017 to 19, she served as Minister of Foreign Affairs, where her knowledge of Ukrainian, Russian, Italian, French and English helped her to succeed in this role. Uh, now, Paul Grod, uh, president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, said that Hrestia Freeland understands Ukraine and Russia better than any Western politician globally and is viewed by other foreign ministers as the key point person on Ukraine. And so having written extensively about geopolitics and the world economy in her journalism career, she is now in a position of power to be able to do something about these issues. And she cares a lot about her Ukrainian heritage and, and she warns that the crisis in Ukraine could become the biggest geopolitical crisis since the Iraq war. She also faces the trouble of healing the rift between Trudeau and the Prairie provinces, especially those of Alberta and Saskatchewan, where no Liberals were voted in. One of the troubles that she faces in her role now is to heal the rift between the Prairie provinces and Trudeau's government, because in these provinces, only one province elected a Liberal, uh, so the other two didn't elect any at all. And one thing that James Bazaar, another politician, hopes will go for go well for Hesha Freeland is the fact that she's another prairie farm kid like him. And he hopes that her prairie roots will bring a level of understanding and respect to the concerns that are being raised by Western Canadians over Trudeau's policies, particularly about legislation that would restrict the construction of pipelines 
and the transport of oil tankers along the West Coast. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's really weird to hear Ukrainians being in, in such like prominent roles in parliament because you just don't hear about that thing about that kind of thing here in Australia but I guess it makes sense in Canada because don't Ukrainians make up like four percent of the population but there are actually quite yeah. a few successful Ukrainians in politics Alexa you you had some stuff uh so yeah Brianna um Ukrainian uh, political activism in Canada stretches back decades and the first Ukrainian person or person of Ukrainian descent that was elected to a official, an official position in Canada was way back in 1913 in Alberta when Andrew Shandrov was elected as a member of the Liberal Party. So the Liberal Party of Canada and Ukrainians share a very long history and so do the prairies as that's where most Ukrainians settled. And so that was kind of, that set the scene for the provincial level because, you know, where there were a lot of Ukrainians, they would, you know, elect one of their own to represent their interests in parliament. Michael... Lutchenkovich was the first um, Ukrainian to be elected to the Canadian House of Commons, which is like the House of Representatives here in Australia and America. And he was elected from the United Farmers of Alberta, again, showing that strong Ukrainian link to the prairies and that central part of Canada. And this kind of set the trend for Ukrainian political activism and they worked their way up the chains of power. And this culminated in the 1990s when Roman Hantushin was appointed as Canada's 24th governor general. And he was also the first uh, non-French or English Canadian to be appointed to the position. And for our non-Commonwealth listeners, the Governor General acts as the Queen's representative in that particular country. And he, as Governor General, he exercises the power of the Crown by signing laws into effect and doing other like regal functions that the Queen would do if she was living in Canada. These days, Ukrainians are active on all sides of the political spectrum, from the Conservatives to the Liberal Party to the New Democratic Party in Canada. And they continue to represent a strong, united voice in Parliament on Ukrainian issues. I think, uh, Alexa, it's, it's, it's true, but I think, I think there's a lot of uh, context that's really important to understand around the Canadian situation. So I guess, although, yes, we could say a lot of, well, the majority of uh, politicians who, I guess, are prominent Ukrainians have come from Alberta in the past, and probably less so today, but for the majority of, of I guess, Canadian political history, that seemed to be a common theme. Um, it's important to remember, obviously, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the dominance of Ukrainian culture, especially in the Prairie provinces, um, particularly because of uh, the the camps that were there and the settlement that happened there well over 100 years ago. But I think it's also quite critical to think about the dynamic of why um, why Hester Freeland is quite important in Trudeau's government. So what Brianna talked about, this idea of mending the relationship with the prairies, the best way to equate that for Australians is probably to think about the West Australian experience, the idea that West Australia has a huge amount of resources, is an engine of, of the economy in Australia, but sometimes feels very much forgotten by the eastern part of the country, which is Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, um, and even Adelaide to some argument and measure. And obviously Canberra being on this side of the the continent makes it very difficult for West Australian affairs to be recognised quite a lot. And it's not uh, without a sense of irony, but the East and West realities do exist in Canada as well. Um, obviously, predominant um, cities like Ottawa, Toronto, um, Quebec and other provinces are all, Ontario, are all in the eastern side of Canada. And as a part of that, um, the idea that 
you need to win the West <laughs> or maintain your, your influence in the West is very important. And it's interesting to note that Stephen Harper was from Alberta, the previous Prime Minister of Canada, and Justin Trudeau has sought to repair his relationship um, over controversial decisions like the oil uh, pipeline in Canada and in the province by um, leaning on uh, a prairie girl in this instance who does have the ability to mend. But notwithstanding that, there's a huge amount of deep Ukrainian identity in Alberta and in the greater country, which is why the idea of a Ukrainian a person of Ukrainian descent who is a foreign minister of a country is wholly supported by the majority of the population to even stand up for Ukrainian um, affairs, even though obviously they represented the country of Canada. And again, we talked about it previously. This is the this is the prairies that have you know littered hundreds of Ukrainian churches that are 100 years old. So there's a deep cultural ownership that most Albertans and most Canadians feel beyond just, um, you know, the idea that this is just for those who are Ukrainian. I think that's a really important part of, of why the initiatives launched by Christian Freeland in terms of Ukrainian um, affairs have quite some weight behind them and obviously have the weight of the Prime Minister himself, Justin Trudeau. So I think um, in that sense, it's a, it's a bit of a different environment. Yeah, so it's great to see how well um, Ukrainians have integrated into the political establishment of Canada and how they're represented on both kind of sides of the aisle. And it also, I think it shows the success of Canada's multicultural society that like uh, Ukrainians have become so well part of the fabric of Canadian culture and life. Yeah, uh, and look, I think it's, it's also a very nice celebration of multiculturalism that sometimes we don't really see even in the Australian experience. In the sense that you have someone again who was raised, you know, with a with an ethnicity or an ethnic background, who grew up in Edmonton um, with obviously a very strong Ukrainian community, who speaks to her children openly. Admits she speaks to her children at home in Ukrainian, but is also the deputy prime minister of Canada. And I think we often in most Western countries talk about this idea of multiculturalism, but the level to which we celebrate it sometimes probably isn't. Um, as straightforward as that. We, we convolute it. We worry about, well, you know, just because you are of this particular ethnicity, that makes it even harder in some ways to step out and say, I will still defend these interests because suddenly if you're a politician in the Canadian or Australian experience, um, you obviously want to be shown to be worried about Ukrainian or, sorry, Australian or Canadian interests first rather than those of your ethnicity and not notwithstanding you wouldn't want anyone to feel there's a bias. And I think this uh, the way that Hester Freeland has been able to continue to support her Ukrainian community in Canada, her native homeland in terms of her, uh, her I guess, grandparents and, and others is a, is a strong testament to her will and character. I mean, this is someone who is being talked about openly in the media as the Prime Minister in waiting um, after Justin Trudeau, should they succeed in an election. So I think it's quite amazing to think that someone can be, you know, perceived by their constituents, by their country, their, um, their fellow Canadians as being very much, you know, a nationalistic Canadian, but still be able to celebrate and still be able to support um, her ethnicity and the culture which she's grown up with, which she believes, you know, is important and also for the nation from which that culture comes, Ukraine, um, the need that she needs to help support it in its struggles in the current geopolitical sphere. Do you think um, Australia has anything to learn? Yeah, Brianna, I think it's, it's just what I said. I think it's about multiculturalism being 
walking the walk rather than talking the talk. It's that real, it's, it's a two-way street. It's not only her conviction and her ability to balance her Canadian identity with her Ukrainian um, ethnicity um, and her, her desire to balance both those issues. It's also the fact that the electorate, that everyday Canadians can see support for that ethnicity and that historical Ukrainian background, but not cloud that with questions of her commitment to the Canadian nation. And I think that balance is something we really haven't seen from any ethnic uh, politician with ethnic roots or any politician we have that has a prominent role in one of their ethnic groups. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting um, and progressive way to look at how you can support both. Um, I would say that the closest we have here in Australia is probably Penny Wong in the Labour Party and probably Gladys Berejiklian in the Liberal Party. And then I'd say in general, like, Canada's attitude towards people from ethnic and minority backgrounds is probably about 20 years ahead of Australian politics. I think they're both really interesting examples. Um, but I guess the question would be, you know, um, if we looked at either of those examples, if there was a role for Australia where Australia has to take a side in the politics of those ethnicities, that's when we'd see a true test. I mean, that's what we're seeing with Hester Freeland. I mean, Canada is, yeah. as a middle power, is very much involved in Ukrainian politics, very much involved in standing against Russia, as is Australia. Um, so there, there's obviously a much more, um, it, it comes back to that whole horrible anecdote that we all have, the, the silly anecdote of saying, well, you know, if Ukraine and Australia were in the World Cup, which one would we go for? Um, but it takes that to a 10th level and brings it to a level that's well beyond what we would think about and really shows a, a level of resolve and, and probably just a level of self-confidence in understanding, you know, your own moral centre and what you're doing um, to be able to, to balance that. So I really take my hat off to her for that. So it's great that uh, when we talk about it from that perspective of showing representation and, you know, standing up for not just being Canadian, but also being Ukrainian Canadian, there's that side. But um, her presence in the government hasn't made any differences to the policies that Trudeau's government is enacting. So, for example, Brianna, you were talking about how she has talked about how the crisis in Ukraine could be the next Iraq war. Has she managed to shift Trudeau and, and you know, pushed him to taking actions um, against Russia for their annexation? Yeah, so Hrestia Freeland will probably be able to provide Justin Trudeau a more unique and nuanced perspective on what's happening in Ukraine and its relations with the world. And then I think in general, Canada has a, a, like a special and unique perspective just because of how big the Ukrainian diaspora is there and how they've, how they've integrated into Canadian society. And so like knowing about Ukraine isn't something that's confined to the Ukrainian community. It's almost part of the mainstream there. I think that's fair to say, Alex. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's two things. I guess I was trying to trying to get to that, I guess, earlier. The whole situation in federal politics in Canada with the Alberta question, obviously there is a dominant Ukrainian population and the Ukrainian consciousness in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And so as part of that, Ukrainian issues and issues for Ukrainians, uh, you know, Ukrainian Canadians, become important uh you know, on the radar of politicians in Ottawa as well for that reason. And not to be so sceptical or too cynical in that way. I mean, that these issues do have a bit more voice because the country is more aware. Um, and certainly things like sanctions and 
leading the world in terms of uh, trying to, you know, push uh, push against Russian aggression would probably be happening in Canada anyway and would be happening from a Trudeau. I just think, as was sort of quoted by um, Brianna earlier, her understanding of the Ukrainian geopolitical situation um, not only is probably second to none in the Western world, it has credibility as a, as a, as a professional journalist at the times that she was actually near the, behind the Iron Curtain for a little while and also around the Iron Curtain during the collapse of the, uh, during the Cold War. So I think that long history, that deep understanding of those issues, I think gives uh, credibility to her opinion, but obviously also means that um, she probably has the confidence of, her, of the Canadian or Trudeau's cabinet in terms of when she speaks about those issues. But as Alexa has said, I think it is you know important to think that the Canadian government has always been very supportive of Ukrainian issues um, because of the very conscious, the, the, I guess, the way that the Ukrainian community is woven into its fabric. Um, and also they were the first country to acknowledge the independence of Ukraine in 1991. So I think that's another another indication that this is something that is, you know, kind of long a part of you know, the Canadian position on that part of the world. Yeah, and so it can be seen in Ukraine's soft power by the fact that... Um Trudeau is willing to wear a Veshevanka and celebrate International Veshevanka Day and other like major Ukrainian holidays along with other you know Ukra- uh, Canadian political figures and I think it highlights how much Ukrainian culture has become part of the mainstream in Canada and I know that like there's a YouTuber that I follow and he talks about like politics in Canada and global affairs and stuff. And even he will like randomly throw in random Ukrainian references that like he enjoys. Like for example, he goes to Saskatchewan and he's like, oh yes, I got one of my favorite on-the-go snacks, Varanike. And I was just like, oh, it's so like weird seeing a non-Ukrainian referencing Ukrainian food. Yeah, and look, and, and with that, I think it's probably worth noting as well that Although we don't have the same example in our own political spheres in state, and uh, I guess in, uh, certainly aside from Katarina Bilek as a senator, I don't believe there is um, too many examples. There's a few, but in, in federal. Um, but I think you know the fact that Australia as a middle power has been supportive of Ukraine in very similar ways, um, to similar strengths, if not sometimes a little bit louder, under multiple prime ministers because we've had too many in the past ten years. But um, that message has been consistent across all of them. Um, so I think uh, I think there's a, there's a point to be made for the efforts of our community in terms of also you know, making sure those issues do get raised. But also I think um, there's obviously a level of understanding how the world works from from these governments, and they they know which side you know is probably more being truthful than the other. They know which side's being aggressive, and perhaps ones you know which one's being the aggressor. And I think that also is just shown to be doing the right thing rather than anything beyond that.
So as you may have heard recently, the Russian Orthodox Church has, has started creating two mosaics within their Orthodox military church just outside of Moscow. And just a little bit, little facts about the church. Uh, so first off, it's going to be one of the world's tallest Orthodox churches. At the diameter of the, uh, the drum underneath the main kapalo is measured at 19.45 meters, which is signifying the end of World War II. And then the Road of Memory will have 1,480. 18 steps corresponding to the number of days the Soviet Union fought in the war. So these main steps are reportedly forged from the metal savage from Nazi military hardware. So obviously this isn't your typical church made out of I don't know, stone, wood, bricks. Uh, it's reminiscent of like war rather than about prayer. So but this brings me onto the mosaics now. There are three mosaics I want to touch on. The first one is the return of Crimea to Russia. In this picture, it depicts Putin, Sergei Shogui, the defense minister, Alexander Rotnikov, the head of the Federal Security Service, and other top brass walking in a sea of Russians bearing tricolored flags. Also in the crowd appears to be Valery Gerasimov, a prominent Russian general, and Sergei Aksionov, the current head of Crimea. Now, in this sea of crowd, there are two banners that are being held. The main one is forever with Russia, and then in the background there is Crimea is out. So it's installing Putin as a igniter of Russian language, as well as a protectorate. So what do you guys think about this first mosaic? Isn't it kind of weird to have your dictator, in a sense, <laughs> portrayed in the church? Yeah, and also traditionally meant to show either saints or depictions from the Bible. Pretty sure the annexation of Crimea doesn't appear in the Bible, nor is it a holy Christian event. One thing that has recently came up is that the Kremlin, and I think specifically Putin as well, have not fully condemned it, but said that it was an inappropriate time to be revealing this type of monument. And I believe he says, a spokesman of Putin said this, when he was told about this, he smiled and said, someday our thankful descendants will appreciate our merits, but it's too early to do this now. So... I think he was kind of testing the water, see how people would react, and I think he kind of got a bit scared there. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think um, I think this sort of the, all this posturing kind of reminds me of of I guess the, the long-standing agenda uh, since it seems since Putin has come has come into power in, in two thousand uh, was just that idea that um, the glory of Russian history needed to be, you know revived and lifted and, and restored and certainly i mean when it comes to something like world war ii um we, there's often the phrase saying history is written by the victors um i think when it comes to world war ii sake, history is written by all the victors slightly differently depending on their political and geopolitical orientation <laughs> so it is very fair that you know um things like the the campaign from from russia's side or on, on the the eastern front for the second world war the ultimate invasion of Berlin and the vision of Berlin, that there was, you know, a key part of uh, the ending of the war in Europe was definitely uh, to large part due to um, the the Russian forces uh, that did invade. And, you know, but but I think there's one, there's one side of it saying that, you know, okay, this was a combined effort in multiple fronts and the war was won by the Allies. However, what you've seen consistently coming from um, Putin few years is more of a re-narrative, a, a more emphasis on the narrative around the Russian particular experience or the Soviet Union's experience. 
at the time in terms of uh, winning the war, to the point even where um, Putin didn't attend the 75th anniversary celebrations of D-Day landing, um, which, you know, okay, Russia, I guess the Soviet Union didn't participate in, in that landing, but traditionally they'd come to honour it as allies of those countries that did land at D-Day. But he actually made a point of saying, well, D-Day didn't win the war. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's, there is something very interesting about this, you know, I guess pushing an emphasis on the victory in, I guess, the perspective of the victory of the war being won by the Soviet Union and kind of ignoring the realities of that joint effort, which I think is a, is part of it. And then obviously by embellishing these sort of things in the same way as other um, Russian history has, has been done, obviously provides them a level of, I guess, permanency that maybe they don't have. You know, once something's etched in, in stained glass, perhaps it's not as reversible as people think it could be, you know, that, you know, maybe Crimea is lost forever now that we've got a stained glass window in Red Square or in the Kremlin that says this is happening. So I think that's that's probably a part of it too. It's interesting to see as well. He's um, started to only emphasise the Russian contribution to the Soviet victory. So he's downplayed how, like, Ukrainians formed, I think, a third of the Red Army, how Belarusians mm. formed a significant portion. He only highlights the fact that it was Russians that won the war, no other nationality, which is, you know, not possible because Russians only made up, like they made up a significant part, but they didn't make up the Soviet Union. Exactly. And I think that's, that's again, it's, it's part of the same reappropriation of history to be um, a Russian achievement, even though it was, you know, may have been considered in the past a technically a Soviet achievement. Um, and certainly, you know, in other areas when it comes to Ukrainian history and Kiev and Rus and, and other um, parts of, you know, I guess the origins of the Ukrainian nation and Slavic peoples in that part of Europe, um, it, you know, he's also, I guess it's, it's quite common to see that kind of same narrative happening in those situations where a lot of this is being appropriated to be purely Russian um, rather than acknowledging that, you know, it, it, these things happened at a time before there was um, particularly a, a, Russian, a Russian nation. I think you had a good comment, Nathan, on the second one. The second one that shows the, uh, the Soviet victory um, I thought was interesting given that so the Soviet government was particularly, uh, well, I'd say strongly against uh, religion. And I know, like I've mentioned before, how they um, closed down churches and would turn them into, you know, museums of atheism. But... Um, Another point I've thought of and I thought was interesting is you're seeing this a lot now in the world where um, political leaders are kind of being, I'd say, deified, is that the correct word, or or uh, shown to be deities. And it's kind of got a North Korean feel to it because you know how they they said like Kim Jong-il was, you know, born under a double rainbow and, you know, when first time he picked up a golf club, he scored a 38 under par. And there's all these ridiculous things that are happening now. And now you see Putin being put up as this kind of, you know, godlike or religious figure that has brought victory. And, and you see it a little bit in America as well. Like Donald Trump received a large amount of evangelical votes and they believe that, you know, there's, there's a link between what he is going to do and religion over there. And I think it's a bit of a worrying trend because it encourages people to follow political leaders, I'd say blindly, because they believe then, oh, this is the will of God. 
But it, it's, it is fascinating what you're saying about it becoming so blatant, I think. I think the North Korean example yeah. is an example of blatant, hard-to-swallow propaganda that doesn't make any sense to someone in a rational state, maybe outside that nation, but makes complete sense to their people who believe it. Um, yeah. and, and, and it actually gets to the point where perhaps believing in it doesn't matter. It's just that mm-hmm. everyone's conditioned to know they have to say it, regardless of whether they believe it or not. Um, I mean, you saw it. You saw it a bit more subtly, a bit more sophisticated. Dare I say it, from Putin earlier? I mean, he used to walk around. You know, the classic meme of him, you know, riding topless on a, on a horse and showing his physical health, or you know, driving a Formula One car at Sochi, or jumping, you know, diving at Lake Baikal, and you know, and uncovering ruins apparently, and uncovering you know archaeological finds somehow that were left there for him to find. I mean, like there was a little bit more. You could probably. There was some more suspension of disbelief, but you could probably maybe, you know, someone could, you wouldn't say someone's crazy to believe it, but you'd be skeptical. Whereas I think what you're saying is absolutely right. There seems to be now a push, and not just in the, happening in the West with Trump as well, a push to kind of just look at pushing that boundary of um, what what is reality, what is factual. Yeah. Following on to the last mosaic. So, like Alexis said, you only ever see either saints or biblical events within a church. But in in this church, they've depicted the R36M missile system, nicknamed Satan. Pretty crazy, right? And I don't know, it seems out of place having a missile, not only within a church, but having the nickname Satan, because it was considered the vanguard of the Russian strategic missile forces. So this is painted on the dome of the church and the Satan missile is surrounded by archangels. And even though it's not completed, uh, reporters have said that uh, when it is to be completed, it's going to depict a mushroom cloud with an atomic explosion. And then this will depict the nuclear destruction of the overseas centers of evil with, with the approval of the heavenly forces. I, I think that goes back to what you Stan said. It's so blatant that it's almost like a self-parody kind of thing. Like if someone... I'd say 10 years ago, if this, this church was being built, people would say like, oh, no, that's a parody article. There's no way that they're going to put a Satan missile into the church. Uh, look, I think it's worth noting that this is obviously a military church. This is a church for service people, um, which I guess doesn't excuse it, but at least the audience that they're trying to, I guess, embolden are obviously some of the people are running those strategic missile forces and, and things like that. But no, it, it is a very unusual uh, thing to depict, I think. Yeah, but I've always seen, well, I've always thought like, and when I look at like the, the War Memorial in um, Canberra, I know it's not a church, but the way that they depict um, war there, especially in the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, it's kind of got, um, you know, the, the images that you see there aren't, aren't aggressive, they don't actually depict, you know, they're not depictions mm. of war, whereas... nationally like, with the Australian flag stabbing somebody in the top. And, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. It's not that kind of, um, it's not that kind of style. Whereas this one's, it's, it's a pretty aggressive approach for a church, which is supposed to be, you know, a place of worship. So good news, the Kremlin has decided that they no longer want to put this mosaic up in the church. I mean, Andre, you mentioned earlier, Putin himself said that he thought that it was too early for an image of himself to be put up in a church in this kind of capacity. And 
I think the arts committee of the church has agreed and so they've decided to scrap the whole mosaic. Uh, so that's the one that's depicting Putin and other officials and also their support for the annexation of Crimea. So good news. This week in the news, the KF City Council has voted to rename a street in honour of Gareth Jones, a Welsh journalist who exposed the horrors of the Holodomor. His life was recently memorialised in the film Mr Jones. Ukraine's border guards are now being equipped with the newly made Ukrainian rifle UAR-15, which replaces the Soviet-made Kalashnikovs. On the 5th of August, Ukraine remembered the victims of Stalin's Great Terror. On this day in 1937, the Politburo of the USSR passed the resolution on anti-Soviet elements, which launched the process of mass extermination in the USSR. This week, Ukraine's first president, Leonid Kravchuk, replaced Leonid Kuchma as representative of Ukraine in the Trilateral Contact Group. It remains to be seen if he would be able to make any progress in resolving the war in Donbass. Tune in next week for more UK Life Report content. In the meantime, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or our website, ukliferabroad.com.